long for that day, do we not, where our joy will be complete as we stand before him and we see him face to face. Uh, I, for one, am looking forward to that day, and this study just has only uh, increased in my anticipation and my joy as I long for that day. Uh, But good morning, Grace Church. Good morning to any of you who are here for the first time. Uh, We are in the middle of a series looking at heaven, what the eternal state will look like for us as believers. And this is going to be the third and final installment of that series. So let's begin this morning getting back into our study on Revelation. Let me ask you this. Are you saving for retirement? Are you even thinking about that? Maybe you're young and you think you've got plenty of time ahead of you to do that. Well, over half of the middle class of America procrastinate on saving for retirement. Over half of the middle class of America, their retirement plan is to put more in later to make up for what they're not doing right now. Then as they get closer to retirement, they realize the minuscule amount that they have saved, and they try to make up for it. And I wonder how many of us, how many people, treat the eternal rewards that we will receive in heaven in much the same way. Paul said that we, the work that we do on this earth, the work that we do for the kingdom, We will be rewarded in heaven for that. All of the deeds that we do on this earth, they will be put through the fire and what stands the test of time, we will be rewarded for. And Jesus told the disciples that the sacrifices that you make for the kingdom will reap a hundredfold. And yet, statistically speaking, we as Americans, we spend about three hours a day, on average, Americans spend about three hours a day on TV, 45 minutes on social media, 50 minutes a day grooming ourselves. I know I don't spend that much time grooming myself, so somebody's got to be making up for that time. But only 10 minutes a day reading and 19 minutes a day serving the church. Now, I would imagine that our church here is not quite the average American, and yet I also wonder how many of us are closer to this than we'd like to admit. If these numbers are indicative of how we spend our time, we are not putting away very much into our eternal reward. We are treating it much like we do our retirement, thinking that we will have time, plenty of time later, to store up our eternal rewards. Are you thinking about eternal rewards, or are you preoccupied by the empty things of this life? Are they eating up your time And you think you will make up for it in the future. If you're like me, you could use the encouragement to be more faithful each and every day, to use your time more faithfully 
for the kingdom. And so if you could use a little encouragement for how you spend your days, that's what we're going to do today. So turn with me if you're not there to Revelation. We're going to see four four realities here in these verses that are going to provoke us to think about how we are spending our days. Now last, two weeks ago, I made it through three verses. Last week I made it through five verses and today we're gonna try and make it through 23. So we're going to have to, we're gonna have to move quickly, okay? Let me just read this to put it in context as we go through this. We left off in verse eight last time, so I'm going to pick it up in verse nine and we're gonna go all the way through 22.5. This is where John picks up after the, the um, interjection of the fact that God is the best part about heaven. He goes back to describing the new Jerusalem. And in verse 9, he says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal." It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed and on the east, three gates and on the north, three gates and on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length, the same as its width, and he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysalis, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb." And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the waters of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, 
and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever. So we are going to look at this chunk of scripture here. And we're first going to to look at the city of light, or rather the city of life. This new Jerusalem, which is going to be our home. We're going to look at this city that we are going to look, live in forever. But before we get there, I just want to touch on what I mentioned last week. In chapter 21, verse 5, John was told, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And again in 22.6, the same thing. These words are trustworthy and true. That is, they are worthy of our full confidence and they are in alignment with reality. They comport with reality. They are true. And as I mentioned last time, there are many people who take this portion of Scripture and they translate it or interpret it symbolically. One commentator says, to think of this passage as a vision of a future literal city is to miss its fundamental symbolic nature. This does not mean that there will be no literal new cosmos, but that the point of the vision is the focus on the exalted saints and the central feature of the new order. That is, there's no real city Jerusalem. This is symbolic of the people of God. One, another commentator notes, the massive size of the city, the huge size symbolizes the immensity and profundity of God's purposes that will be realized. Some take the physical description of the wall and they say it's symbolic of the inviolable care of God in saving his own people. And the physical description of the 12 gates are symbolic of an abundant invitation for all people to enter God's city through faith in Christ. Another commentator says light is just a symbol of ethical purity. Another says the immensely rich city with its pure swept streets represent the qualitative nature of the new creation. It is pure in every way, morally, spiritually, and ideologically. And another commentator notes when trying to know, when trying to interpret this, trying to understand whether or not it should be interpreted literally or figuratively, he says this, and I quote, if we keep in mind that the book of Revelation is a code book and that much of the code grows out of the Old Testament, and if we seek to decode the cipher from the Old Testament, we shall be on safe ground in our interpretation. As we get into these verses today, we're going to see that they are very consistent with verses from the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament doesn't give us a cipher for interpreting the New Testament, nor vice versa. Rather, it is very continuous throughout. There's a good deal of continuity throughout. 
And we do not need to interpret these scriptures symbolically as many do. We are going to, as we get into this, remain consistent how we interpret them as we do everything else in scripture. Many people get to portions of scripture like this and they change their hermeneutic, they change their rules for interpretation, and we're not going to do that. We are going to stick with a grammatical, historical interpretation and read these verses in the way that God meant them to be read, historically and grammatically, just as John described them. For if God wanted to describe a literal city on the new earth, is there any other way he could have done it? No. But if he wanted to describe the people of God, there are plenty of other ways he could have done it to make that clear. And so just keep that in mind as we get into this. So many people are translating this and explaining away this beautiful city that God has for us, and I don't think they're doing anybody a service. So as we get into this text, we are going to see four beautiful realities of eternal life that provoke us to think about how we steward our days. This life is short, and we constantly need, need to be reminded and we needed to be provoked to use our days wisely. So we're going to have four points here, four realities here that provoke our thinking. And the first one, the first point is our glorious home. And that's going to cover verses 9 to 21 in chapter 21. Point two is our essential light. And that's going to finish up the chapter 22 to 27. And then our abundant provision, 22, 1 to 2, and our sacred servitude, 22, verses 3 through 5. Our glorious home, our essential light, our abundant provision, and our sacred servitude. So the first chunk of verses here, 9 to 21, it is a large chunk of scripture. We're not, gonna, we're not going to dive into many of the details, but we're going to hit the uh, what I think are the important aspects that need explanation. The legitimate question we have to ask here comes right out of verse 9, where the angel says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And the legitimate question here to ask is, is this talking about the church, or is this talking about a city? And you'll notice in your ESV, Bride there is capitalized. They're interpreting that by capitalizing that, indicating that they think this is referring to the church. Back in chapter, or in chapter 21, verse 2, John just described this city as a bride or like a bride. But here, the angel says, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And this is what has led many to think that this is a picture of the church, that this is symbolic of the church because of this text right here. And so is this talking about the church or is this talking about the city? We need to 
take in mind a parallel passage in Revelation. There's another city that's likened to a woman in Revelation, and this will help us wrap our minds around this. Flip back a couple pages to Revelation chapter 17. The other city that is likened to a woman is the city of Babylon. And there's quite a few parallels. Just note the parallels in here as we go through. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls, chapter 17, verse 1, who had the seven bulls came and said to me, so it could be the, seven, the same angel that came to him later, but this angel says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. Very parallel here to what John describes in Revelation 21. Look at the very end. So he describes that as, he says, the prostitute. But here, at the end of 17, we get what that is directly referring to. Verse 18, it says, And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So this woman is a city. And then chapter 18, verse 2, begins to talk about the fall of Babylon the Great. And throughout chapter 18, talks about the judgment of Babylon for her sin. Babylon is described as a harlot because of the sin of its inhabitants. We know that the literal buildings of the city, they're not sinful in and of themselves. But Babylon is described, the city is described as a harlot because of the sin of its inhabitants. And likewise, the new Jerusalem is called the bride of Christ because it takes on the character of its residents who are the bride of Christ. The city, the new Jerusalem, can rightly be called the bride because it, is, it takes on the characteristics of those who live there. And one author notes, he points out the parallels between these two passages, and he says the point is that you cannot inhabit both cities. You must choose one of them. You will be given over to sin with its destruction for your end in the city of Babylon, or you will believe and submit to Christ for eternal life. Both are described as cities and women, so to speak, because of the people who live there. And they take on the qualities of one another. So this is not a reference directly to the church. That is to say that there is a literal city here. You can have both. You can have a city that takes on the characteristics of its people, and yet there is still a literal city. So we see here there is a literal city, even though it is described as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. But let's look at how John describes this city, which is our glorious home. 
The Spirit takes him up to a high mountain. So if you are wondering if there's going to be mountains in the new earth, there are. Let's start in verse 11. John says, having the glory of God. So the first thing that John notes about this city before he begins to describe it is that it has the glory of God. And this goes back to what we talked about the last two weeks. The, the main point, the, the climax of the new earth is that God will be with us. And here the, the high point that John describes in this city is that the glory of God dwells there. And as we get into this description, this glory of God, the shining, the light that goes out from God is what makes it so gloriously beautiful. So John says it has the glory of God and he says it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. There's a lot of debate as to what that Greek word there translated into jasper is actually referring to. If you just Wikipedia jasper, it's this red oxide colored stone but that's not the description that John gives us here. He says, is like a most rare jewel, clear as crystal. What does that make you think of? The most rare jewel, clear as crystal, has led many commentators to think this is referring to a diamond. John describes the city that has the glory of God within it, coming down out of heaven, and he says it looks like a radiant diamond. Only the diamonds we have, they don't have a light source within them. Imagine a light bulb with a light source within, and the bulb is made out of diamond. Imagine the beauty as the light refracts out of the diamond what it would look like. That's how John describes this city descending from heaven. Far more beautiful than any diamond we've ever seen. He goes on in verse 12, he said, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and the, tw and the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on all the gates, on all the sides. In verse 14, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The reference here to the 12 apostles and the reference to the 12 tribes of Israel is really a reminder of our spiritual heritage. That is to say that those men who lived on this earth, their lives really did matter. What they did in this life really did matter. For their names are etched in the walls and the gates of this city for all eternity. And I think this is applicable for us as we think about that. Our lives here on this earth are not just meaningless. 
They really do matter into eternity. I referenced this earlier as I read scripture, but 1 Corinthians 3, Paul said he was laying a foundation for the church. Let's just go there and look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he's talking about the reward that we will get for the things that we do on this earth that matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And think about this in light of the Jerusalem that we just had described to us. 1 Corinthians 3.10 says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds on it. That's us. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul said he was laying a foundation for the church. The apostles and the prophets are the foundations of the faith. And just as the apostles' lives will be remembered and memorialized in the great city, so Paul says we will be rewarded for that which we have done that stands the test of fire. And as we put this in, in Revelation, as we look at Revelation, perhaps the gold and the precious jewels of our work from this life, just like the apostles, will be put somewhere into the foundation or the city. That is to say that you have a chance to make a mark in eternity for what you do with this life. We can't be certain from this passage that we will get a mark in the eternal city, but Paul was very clear. What we do with this life does make a mark in eternity. We will be rewarded, though we don't exactly know what that reward is. But as the foundation of the new Jerusalem is described in similar terms to what Paul uses, I don't think it's beyond reason to imagine we could have precious stones in that foundation from the work that we did here on this earth. And it's all lit by the glory of God that shines out. It's not that the, the focus would be on us any more than the focus is on the apostles or on the, the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel. God is still the center. He lights it all, and yet we would have a mark there. How cool would it be to be able to walk around the city and just see record of what everyone did with their life that lasted? So many things that are not recorded in history that the saints have done, so many saints we've never even heard of 
yet we may be able to walk the gates of the city and see record of that. How cool would that be? The more you sacrifice on this earth for the mission of Christ to make disciples, to build the Lord's church, the more reward you will have in heaven. That much can be certain. Don't treat eternity like something that you can focus on later. If you're young, start early. Start now. Create good habits of spending your time wisely, serving the church, stashing away eternal rewards early on and your dividends will be great. You have the opportunity to make a mark on eternity. Don't waste the days you have now on trivial things that the majority of Americans spend their time on. Use your time wisely. If you talk to any older saints, they never lament that in their life they didn't accomplish more in this world. They never lament that they didn't get this done or that done or build this business or do that. But they do lament that they didn't spend more time building eternal rewards in heaven, building the Lord's church, sacrificing time and energy to the ministry. So that's what those names listed on the gates and the foundations are for, to tell us that this life really does matter. And he goes on in verse 15. And he said, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square in its length, and its 12,000 stadia has the same length, width, and height. Now, if you bothered to look at the little note, the little footnote at the bottom of your page, you'll realize how massive this city is. 12,000 stadia works out to be about 1,200 miles. 1,200 miles. Colorado is only 200 and some across and 100 and some in length. This roughly takes up half the continental United States. Just to give you an idea of how big this is and how high it protrudes, if the new earth, which we have no idea if the new earth will be the same size as this earth, but if it is the same size as this earth, take a basketball. If that represents the size of the earth, take a basketball and put a Rubik's cube on the basketball and that's about what this city would look like. Just do that when you get home if you have those two things. That's not exact, but it is absolutely enormous. This will be our eternal home. A city that John describes as looking like a diamond. This will be our eternal home. Now, just to break that down for you, that's a little hard for us to even wrap our minds around how big it is. Let's just say half of the city 
Half of the new Jerusalem is used for public space, maybe to gather to worship the Lord. Half the space is used for that, and the other half we get a room in. The other half is used for residential space. And let's just, for argument's sake, say there's a billion people there. A billion people there. We all get ground floor, because it's heaven, right? We all get ground floor. We don't have to climb stairs. You divide this space up, even by one billion people, and that would still give each of us a room the size of this church building. Actually, quite a bit larger, but just to give you an idea, a space the size of this church building. But that's just the ground floor. It goes up. The height of the city reaches just as far. So if you wanted to add stories to your room, you could have ceilings this high, and it would only go up 250,000 more floors. I don't think I need that much space. I sure hope I have an elevator if they if they're have that much space. But just to give you an idea of how massive this city is, and it is adorned, it is made of clear gold. Clear gold. The most beautiful city we have ever seen, we will be in it. It will be our eternal home. Now, that is the home we will live in forever. Are you living in light of the fact that you will have a home there that you are completely satisfied with? Are you dissatisfied with your home now? Do you think you'll find greater satisfaction in a bigger, better home here? I mean, we all have needs. My wife and I hated living in a tiny little apartment in California, but we knew that we were just suffering through that for my time in seminary, that we would be able to return here to our home that we left, that we loved and enjoyed so much more. But we were willing to sacrifice that for a short period of time for the good of this church, for the good of the ministry, for the good of the church. And we ought to have that same mentality even for the homes we live in here when it comes to our eternal home. I was talking with a friend who has talked about buying a new home for years. And when I talked to him when I got back from California, I asked him if they had planned to do that. And they said, you know, there's nothing wrong with our house. We just really don't like the way it's laid out. But it works for us. And he said you know, we could buy a new home. We could afford it. But if we did, we wouldn't be able to give to the church the way we want to. That is the mindset that I pray we all have when it comes to the things we have in this life. If we need something, that's one thing. If you are having children and you need a bigger space, that's one thing. But if what we have actually works and it's just the fact that we don't like it and we want something else, you will have an eternal home that you are completely satisfied with. 
No matter what house you buy here on this earth, you will find something you don't like about it. It might take you a little while, but in heaven, in our eternal home, there will be nothing that we don't like about it. It will be absolutely perfect. So, sacrifice in this life that you might look forward to the eternal home that will truly satisfy your soul. Will truly satisfy your soul. And I'll let you read through and you can Wikipedia all those jewels and what they look like and the, the beauty that is in them. But just for the sake of getting through the rest of this text. Just know that our eternal home will be the most beautiful thing we have ever seen. And it will truly satisfy our souls, number one, because God is there. And we stand before him for all eternity. But also because we have the space we will have will perfectly suit our every need and our every desire and we will want nothing else. But let's move on to the second reality, and that is the essential light of the earth, our essential light. And I think the, the, the center point of all of these verses, 22 to 27, is that the light of God goes forth and gives us all that we need. It is the, the life-sustaining light that goes forth. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So that word there, when John says, I saw no temple, there's two words that he could have used to refer to the temple. One of them refers to the actual temple buildings, the temple complex. So it would be the, the storage rooms on the outside of the temple, the temple mound, everything that had to do with the temple. But that's not the word here that Jesus, or that uh, John uses. John here says that there is no temple in reference to the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies. And I think John's point here is, in eternity, there is no longer a room that will contain the glory of God. There is no inner sanctuary that's going to contain the light of God's glory. Rather, there is no need of sun or moon because God's glory is completely unveiled and it shines throughout the entire earth. There's no need of sun or moon. And because of a parallel passage in Isaiah, I really don't think there is a sun or moon. John could have easily told us, he uses this language, there was no more, or I didn't see it. But he doesn't say those things. Rather, his focus is on the fact that the city has no need of a light source, has no need of the essential 
life-giving light source of the sun because God is its light. The glory of God is unmasked and provides light for the city and the entire earth. For look at verse 24. He says, by its light, that is the glory of God, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut and there will be no night and they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. So God's glory is going to be completely unveiled. It's going to shine across the entire new earth so that all the inhabitants of the earth, wherever they are on the earth, they walk, they go about their days in the light that comes all the way 700 miles from within the city, if it's in the center, shining out, refracting through wall after wall of gold in the city, refracting out, shining through a wall of diamond, refracting out into the world in every direction. And it is by this light that we will walk. Now, I think the, the verb walking here is just a reference to going about our business. It's by this light the nations walk on the earth and live. The question is, what are these people doing? What are we doing as we walk out on the earth? And as we look at this, as I read this week, the New Testament here does not give us a lot of details as to what we will be doing in the eternal state. But as I read this week, several parallel passages that, that mix details concerning the millennial kingdom and the eternal state I think we can say that it's safe to say that life will look similar to how Christ orders it in the millennium as it will in the eternal state. Flip over to Isaiah 60 with me. So I think we can infer what, will we, what we will be doing for all eternity based on what is going on in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 60, go down just as a reference point, so you see how, how often this is mentioned in Scripture. Isaiah 60, start in verse 19. And see if you see this as being parallel. The sun, Isaiah 60, 60, verse 19. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall be the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan, the smallest one a mighty nation. I am Yahweh. In, in its time, I will hasten it. So there's just a reference in Isaiah of the eternal state. And right before this 
is a reference to the millennial kingdom and what people are doing. Keep in mind in Revelation, it talked about nations walking about and kings bringing their honor and glory into the city. That honor and glory by many commentators is seen as treasures, cultural treasures that catch the eye. That's the word glory means something that can catch the eye. And honor can be a reference to treasures. And so at the beginning of Isaiah 60, look at what it says. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. This is a reference now to the millennial kingdom. And nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They shall gather together. They shall come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall exult and thrill because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels and they list more Things, gold and frankincense in the end of verse 6. And then they also mention at the end of verse 6, good news and the praises of the Lord is what the kings bring in. All the flocks for the sacrificial system in the millennial kingdom, they shall come up with abundance to my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. So in the millennial kingdom... And Zechariah 14 references this. Every year in the millennial kingdom, everyone is required to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Even those who don't believe in Christ in the millennial kingdom that reject him, they are still required to go up every year or else they receive no rain. And so every year they're required to go up and here we see a picture of what they are bringing They're bringing God things to beautify his house. They're bringing him gold, incense. They're bringing praises on their lips. And I think this gives us a window into what we will be doing. You can go back to Revelation 21 now. What we will be doing for all eternity. I think likewise, we will live out on the earth, not just in the city, for the open gates of the city indicate freedom to come and go, but the nations walking upon the earth, the kings bringing in their glory and honor is a reference to what we will be doing. Possibly making works of art, writing music, making new discoveries. Listen to what A.A. Hodge says about heaven and the activities that we will be doing there. And I quote, Heaven, as the eternal home of the divine man, that is Christ, and of all the redeemed members of the human race, heaven must necessarily and be thoroughly human in its structure, conditions, and activities. 
Its joys and activities must all be rational, moral, emotional, voluntary, and active. There must be the exercise of all faculties, the gratification of all tastes, the development of all talent capacities, the reason, the intellectual curiosity, the imagination, the aesthetic instincts, the holy affections, the social affinities, the inexhaustible resources of strength and power native to the human soul must all find in heaven exercise and satisfaction. Listen to that last part again. The inexhaustible resources of strength and power native to the human soul, which God has created each of us with, they must all find in heaven exercise and satisfaction. So just think about those things. Imagination, intellectual curiosity, the talent that God has created you with. Listen, in heaven, you will still be you. You will still have the talents that God has given you, the imagination that God has given you, the intellectual curiosity that God has given you. Only in heaven, all of those things will find full exercise and satisfaction. Listen, I would... I love playing piano, but I do not have time to give on this earth to be any good at it. But if that's a desire that God has given me here, perhaps in heaven, Ren can spend a few thousand years learning to play piano, and then he can teach me a few thousand years how to play piano. And then I can use my imagination that God has given me to write a song of praise to him, and one day go before his throne and sing it to him and play it for him. How wonderfully and marvelous would that be? I love building things. Maybe I'll be able to build, invent my own instrument and learn how to play it and sing a song before heaven. We will have all eternity to exercise all that God has created us to do. Intellectual curiosity, imagination, aesthetic instincts, holy affections, all of these things will find full exercise and satisfaction in heaven. Yes, in God himself, but also the activities we will do. So whatever we do, it will be all satisfying for our souls. And God gave Adam work to do in the garden. It's only logical that he will give us things to do as well. And along those same lines, whatever he gives us to do will be all satisfying to our souls. So don't give your life in this life seeking satisfaction in Work, seeking satisfaction, chasing your dreams, all of those things will leave you feeling empty in this life. Know that what you do in this life 
is passing away, and we only have a brief amount of time, but in heaven, God will give us things to do and activities to do that will be all satisfying to our souls. So don't give your life to your work here because you think that will bring you satisfaction. And if you're young and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life and you're trying all manner of things and you can't find anything that you really want to do, then know that in eternity you will be given the dream job of your life. You will be given the thing that you were meant to do. That's not what this life is for. Find a job that you don't hate. Find a job that you can stand to go to, that you can feed your family on, and serve the church. Knowing that in heaven you will get to do that one thing you always wanted to do, even though you don't know what it is yet. I mean, some of our young people are there. They're trying to figure out what they want to do, and they don't know what it is yet. Don't be anxious in this life about that, for God will give you eternally what you were truly meant to do. I had a friend in California who got a new job. He performed music. He was a legit music performer and was very good at it. And he got a job teaching because his performance couldn't pay the bills. And he sounded excited about getting this job. And a couple months later, we, my wife and I asked him, hey, do you like your job? And he said, no, I hate it. I hate it. But he said, everybody else I talk to hates their job too. So I might as well just do something that feeds my family and allows me to serve the church. Beloved, that's the mentality we ought to have in this life. So don't give your life trying to find things in this life to satisfy you, that will happen in eternity. God has told us what he wants us to do and give our time to on this earth. And it is all these things that we will do in the light, the sustaining light of God's glory. So let's move on. So we've, we've seen our glorious home, how we don't have to be satisfied in, in this life. We'll be satisfied in the next, the light that we will walk in, the lives that we will live in the light of his glory, our glorious home and our essential light. Now in chapter 22, verses 1 to 2, is our abundant provision our abundant provision. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And write this down as a cross-reference. I don't have time to look at it today. Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12 is a very similar scene in the millennial kingdom. Just more evidence, I think, that the millennial kingdom will look a lot like the eternal state. 
read that this afternoon and just meditate on that. Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. And I kind of mentioned this last week, but there is a literal spring that pours forth water from the throne. And on either side of this river is the tree of life that produces fruit. And I mentioned this last week, but I'm going to reiterate it here. Just as God used the tree of life in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve to give them life immortal, so he is going to do in the eternal state. God sustains our life now with or without food if he chooses. He sustained the life of Christ without food in the wilderness for 40 days. He could choose to sustain us however he wants. And it seems in the eternal state, much like the Garden of Eden, God will choose the means of food and water to sustain us as well. And as we looked at last week, we have free, full, and total access. So don't think, what if I can't get there? What if I don't have enough? Those are questions for this life. In the next, there is free access, total abundance of any provision we might need. We don't have to worry about whether we will have what we need. God will abundantly supply our every need. And we will all come before his throne in heaven where it is obvious that this is a direct means of his. He is the source of life. And yet these are the means he chooses to sustain us. But there is that peculiar phrase that the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, why do we need leaves for healing? If there's no more curse, why do we need leaves for healing? Now, these verses do not indicate that there will be disease in heaven any more than the wiping away of tears indicates the presence of pain from the curse. Rather, this word, which is therapeia, can be thought of as sustaining health. John MacArthur even says, perhaps it would be better to translate this word therapeia as therapeutic. We know life and health are not the same things. Many of our members are alive and yet they are suffering from chronic health problems. And I think the picture that John is painting for us here explaining for us here that there will be an abundance of life and an overabundance of health. There will be nothing detracting from life in the eternal state. He will sustain our lives and he will sustain our health by means of these things. And we have total and free access. There's never a chance that these things will fail because God has promised this here. I don't know what all we will be doing in heaven, but all that we have to do in heaven, 
beyond admiring and worshiping at the throne of God, it will be all satisfying to our souls. We have an abundance of everything that we need. So the point here is that just as God is essential and central to everything else, so he is here. He is the source, though not the direct means, by which he will provide for and sustain our lives and our health. Let's move on to the final point, because I said a lot of that last week, and we don't need to reiterate it here. But God is our abundant provision. And finally, this eternal home will be our sacred servitude, our sacred servitude. Here, where the throne of God and the Lamb will be, there is nothing accursed, just in case you thought the healing of the nations meant that there would be some kind of disease. There's nothing accursed, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The word in your ESV translation there as servants is really the word for doulos, which is a slave. And the word, therefore, worship is not the same word that's down in verse 8. If you look down in verse 8, John says, I fell down to worship at the feet of an angel. It's not the same word. The word up here in verse 3, his slaves will serve him, is a better translation. This word for worship here refers to the priestly duties at the temple, which can rightly be described as worship, but in the context of John using doulos here, slave, it's probably better we understand this as service. In his presence, we will see his face and his slaves will serve him. And his names will be on their forehead. We will be his Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp for sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The revelation alone describes believers as sons, priests, kings, heirs, all of those things. Yet here, John ends this with a focus on Slaves serving him. Now, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine in heaven, as John said in 20 verse 6, we are a kingdom of priests of God and they will reign with him for a thousand years. We'll be priests to God, servants to God for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom and then we are priests in the eternal state as well. And as we stand before him to serve, I think, I don't think everyone will necessarily be there at once. If the Lord orders eternity the way he told the Israelites to order worship for the tabernacle and the temple, perhaps we will go about our lives on the earth, returning periodically to Jerusalem to worship God, to bring our cultural 
treasures to him to present to him. But perhaps we all take turns serving before the throne of God. Because he calls us kings and sons and heirs and servants. And I think just as Adam was to reign and rule over the earth, so we will be too. But we are also called to serve in his very presence. So perhaps we will, like the Israelites did, take turns doing the best job, the treasured job in Israel, which was serving the Lord in his presence. So perhaps we will reign over the earth as kings and take turns serving in the very presence of God for all eternity. And that, beloved, John ends with here because that will be the highlight of all the things that would satisfy our soul in heaven, the highlight, the climax of it again would be serving as a slave before the throne of grace. And so let us not forget that. The highest, most treasured position would be a slave. Think about that in our cultural context today. That's like the ultimate evil, slavery, and yet the best place in heaven would be serving at the feet of Christ as a slave. There would be no better place, and it would be far more satisfying than anything in this life. So in conclusion, are you living in light of these things to make your mark in eternity? Are you looking to be satisfied in this life, or are you looking to sacrifice for the kingdom, knowing that you will find true and eternal satisfaction in heaven. Peter asked Christ, Lord, he said in 1927, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Peter was not rebuked for asking Christ what his inheritance will be. And he said, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone, that's us, who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Beloved, the things that you do in this life that have no eternal value, they bring you no dividend in your investment in eternal life. But the sacrifices that you make for the kingdom and the mission of making disciples will produce a hundredfold. And that is a direct promise from the lips of Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, we all desire to do this, but we fail over and over again as we contemplate it. But listen, the best way to accomplish this, to change your habits, is simply to make a plan. It's not difficult Write it out and simply make a plan and commit yourself to it. Take time this week to assess 
how you spend your days. Make a plan for what you want that to look like and hold yourself to it. Will you live to make a mark in eternity? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so unworthy to even come before your throne, and yet because of the blood of your Son that you have ransomed us by, we can stand here to come before your throne and petition you, Lord. And I just pray that you impress these words on our minds and our hearts, that we might consider how we spend our time and our days. Lord, that you would, as the psalmist says in Psalm 90, 12, teach us to number our days that we might use them wisely. For it is only by your grace that we can do this. Do this work in us, Lord. Amen.